Hello! You are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We are continuing our Season 2 series, The Wild West of Computing, by digging into the 1970s. In the first two episodes, we talked about computers and funding. In this episode, we'll focus more on the culture of the computer science department in the 1970s. But first, there was a crisis. October 22nd, 1972. On page A8 of the Pittsburgh Press, there's a headline. 40 staffers lopped by CMU Economy Acts. Wait, let's backtrack a minute. Christmas Eve, 1970. Raj Reddy calls Alan Knoll to tell him that Alan Perlis is quitting and is going to Yale. This follows a few years of faculty slowly leaving. I've heard it described as everything from a gradual drip to uh, an evisceration of the department. That is Andrew Mead McGee, who you probably remember from the first two episodes. He's a visiting assistant professor of history here at CMU. Large numbers of faculty go, and they go to other prominent locations built on the work that they've done at CMU. Albert Meyer and Mark Fisher go to MIT. Tim Standish goes to Harvard. Some people go to Stanford. CMU has a legacy of seeding other institutions. People will spend a little bit of time here. The department was somewhat lean, and a founding force like Alan Perlis leaving was quite a blow. There were new hires like Raj Reddy, Gordon Bell, and Nico Haberman, but they were all relatively new. Defining culture is always tricky. And the culture of CMU in the 1950s and 1960s reflects just how small the institution was and how idiosyncratic the communities coalescing around this early computing were. As a small institution that then starts growing rapidly with infusions of government money, CMU undergoes a number of growing pains. Early Carnegie Tech computing very much revolves around the personalities of the lead figures who, who dominate first the computation center and then the department of computer science. I'm hesitant to call it a cult of personality, but it's one that prides itself on the eccentricities and quirkiness of its core figures, particularly Alan Perlis, who is the glue that holds it together for the 1956 to 1971 period. He authors the principal grants, he heads the computation center, he becomes the executive of the eventual Department of Computer Science. He has major health issues, though. He also is facing increasing difficulties in corralling so many distinctive personalities and takes a chair at Yale where he can focus more on his teaching and research and relax a little bit as opposed to being an administrator. In the Computer Science Department's 1970-71 Research Review, 
This is kind of like their annual report. This transitional phase is called out quite clearly. The introduction, which was written by Alan Knoll, says, We have just undergone our most major organizational change since we became a Department of Computer Science in 1965. Alan Perlis has left to become the Higgins Professor of Computer Science at Yale University. Much of the outside world has identified computer science at CMU with Alan Perlis. Still, only those who have been in this environment can appreciate how thoroughly it was saturated with his presence. We wish him well at Yale. Perlis is an interesting figure in that so much of his legacy is centered on his mentorship. He writes a few influential articles, but his true legacy is not in his print scholarship, but in the network of scholars that he trains and then dispatches from CMU. During this period, Carnegie Tech will seed many other institutions with individuals who studied here as students, came as postdoctoral researchers, or served briefly on the faculty and then move elsewhere. Alan Newell talks about how he, Herb Simon, and Alan Perlis never had that entrepreneurial spirit. And that's why the department developed as it did. It was science first. Grad students and building the institution were secondary concerns. The free-spirited 60s of interdisciplinary, heavily funded non-projects is coming to a close. It's partly the Vietnam War cutting off research funding. Instead of rolling three-year grants from ARPA, the CS department is living on an annual $1.5 million grant that sometimes only kicks in a few months after the year begins. There's a growing awareness that depending mainly on ARPA for funding is potentially an unstable prospect. Other changes are due to a new infusion of talent and perspectives. After Perlis leaves, Joseph Traub joins as the new head of the Department of Computer Science, and a bunch of names that you would now recognize enter the department as students or new faculty. He focuses on the small core of remaining faculty, the superstars who will become the foundation of the department. People like Nico Haberman, Raj Reddy, Gordon Bell. And then he focuses on hiring young faculty whom he feels he can convince to stay in Pittsburgh, people like Dan Zawarek. And they become the basis for the rebuilt Carnegie Mellon University, in which they keep some of the quirkiness, they keep the experimental focus. This is a place where experimentalists would define particular projects they wanted to pursue. That continues in the 1970s and into the 1980s as project-based research become central to both the funding mechanisms of the department and the broader university, but also the identity of how labs are structured and how research clusters relate with one another. What we'll see by the mid-1970s is a new, updated version of computer science at CMU, one that is more organized, more diversified, more entrepreneurial, and more project-oriented but still unbelievably loose compared to today. Okay, 
Now we're ready. It's October 22nd, 1972. Page 8 of the Pittsburgh Press. Here's Albin Varia, who worked at the Computation Center, reading from the article. This is a copy of a newspaper article from 1972, October. The headline is 40 Staffers Lopped by CMU Economy Acts. The first paragraph is plagued with the same financial problems as colleges everywhere. Carnegie Mellon University has eliminated $300,000 in salaries by firing one of every 10 employees in its operations division. According to the article, 40 non-academic employees were let go. But CMU President Richard Seyert maintained that services had been improved by the cuts. For Seyert, this was about six months after he took over as president. His goal was to decrease the university's deficit to $800,000. Now, this is relevant to our interests because Seyert appointed Ronald Rutledge, who was the director of CMU's Computation Center, to carry out these dismissals. To carry out the dismissals, President Seyert appointed Ronald M. Rutledge, who was at the time director of CMU's Computation Center, appointed him as chief of operations, essentially bypassing bypassing the vice president for business affairs. Rutledge had previously won praise for cutting the computation center budget from two and a half million to one and a half million, slashing the staff from 87 to 30, and sharply boosting its output and effectiveness. So that affected me. (laughs) Not seriously, personally. I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs, of course. The Tartan, which is the university's student-run newspaper, referred to Rutledge as a hatchet man, while Rutledge preferred the term surgeon. One group of people that lost their jobs were the computer operators, people that would work in the machine room, mount tapes on the mag tape machines, put paper in the printer, take paper off the printer when it was printed, separate one user's output from another user's output, file the output in bins on shelves, Ron fired all the operators. So all of us programmers had to take, you know, one or more shifts during the week to fill in for the operators to do what they did. And he came up with this idea that he put the printers such that the back end of the printer faced the room where the users were. Paper would come off the printer and Ron had somebody build a wooden track or slope. It started from where the paper came out of the printer and it sloped down to the end. You know, it's just like being at the airport, you know, when you watch, watch the carousel, your, your baggage comes around, well, you'd watch the printer for when your output started to come down because it had in block, block letters that had your user ID. And so you operators didn't have to do that anymore. Didn't have to file the output, didn't have to separate the output. Somebody had to put paper in the printer when it ran out. But that was, so he was creative that way. Despite the staff cuts, Rutledge was able to keep two major collaborators. At the time, we had the Model 67, the IBM computer, and we also had a UNIVAC 1108. Okay, I mentioned the 1108 because university administration said, you've got to cut expenses. And they were thinking about, well, you either get rid of the 1108 or you get rid of the 360. So Ron managed to keep both computers and just cut a lot of staff and still get things done. He was creative another way, too. He, <laughs> there was a paper shortage at one point. He ordered a whole boxcar load of computer paper. And at the time, we were in Wien Hall in the basement. 
And there was a part of that building that was underground under the mall, and, but it wasn't used for anything yet. He got a whole <laughs> boxcar load of paper and we stored it in that empty area. As, as the article says, he was made head of operations, which, is, which put him bypassing the president, vice president for business affairs. So he went over to food service and he cut jobs over there. You know. So he didn't make a lot of friends. One more story from Albin. This one is a classic whodunit. But during the time that I was acting director, we had an interesting event. One day, it became clear to us that the user's data files were being corrupted. So that meant we had to stop the computer, stop running the TSS 360 on the Model 67, and restore all the user files from the backup tape from the previous night. So this, you know, this takes a couple hours. So the next day or the next day happens again. Files are being corrupted in the same way. It's clear this is not by accident. So unbeknownst to everybody else, I didn't tell anybody. My job for all these years, ever since they decided to buy the Model 67, was I worked on the, what was called the supervisor. It was the most basic level of software in the machine. It allocated resources to all the other software it was running. And occasionally, I'd have to fix a bug. The way you could do that was I'd punch up a few cards with a patch on it, and we always had a, what we called a startup deck. I could, I could put a couple patches in there so to fix a bug in the computer before I had the opportunity to actually change the code you know, on the keyboard, on the, on the data file, and then build a new operating system. You know, that that took a, a, wasn't something you did on the fly. So anyhow, I put some patches in into the startup deck that set aside 4,000 bytes, I think it was, of storage in the computer, main, mainline storage, and I saved every input line from the user terminals that came in. So I was the first one to do user surveillance behind a computer. <laughs> so when the corruption happened the third time, we took a dump, as we always did when the machine crashed, and we looked through the dump, and we found there was somebody logged in as one of our undergraduate employees, and that person had put a change in to the system that was causing the corruption. You know, we confronted him, and he said, well, I sort of remember doing that. But then later he denied it. But anyhow, we didn't have any choice. You know, we let him go. I mean, he, he still stayed at the university. He completed his degree and everything. He was a nice kid. I was really disappointed when it was, we found out who it was. But anyhow, the corruption stopped. early 1970s, budgets were tighter, but by 1974, the number of students and faculty was increasing. It was one of these weird things where there were so many things going on, no matter what I would have gotten involved in, I would have been interested in it. That's Bruce Whitey. He arrived at CMU in 1974 and finished his PhD in 1978. My peers were working on various you know, speech recognition systems and various kinds of theory, which I didn't know anything about. And just a variety of things that made me feel like I had, you know, every option was open. In the introduction to the annual research review, Joseph Traub talks about the importance of the culture in the department, saying... Perhaps the most important omission is a sense of the liking, respect, 
and above all, trust we feel for each other. It permits us to accomplish things swiftly and painlessly that would otherwise lead to endless thrashing about. The following year would turn out to be quite the celebration, with Alan Newell and Herb Simon sharing the 1975 Turing Award. Gordon Bell won the McDowell Award. Raj Reddy won a Guggenheim Fellowship. Jack Buchanan served a year as a Judicial Fellow with the U.S. Supreme Court and the Federal Judiciary Center. And in October 1975, the Computer Science Department celebrated its 10th anniversary. In our oral history archives, we have a lot of really interesting stories of what student life was like during this time period. Let's start with a story about why Bruce Wadi came to CMU for his graduate studies. Bruce was a freshman at the University of Toledo in 1971. He was visiting a friend at CMU when someone introduced him to Raj Reddy. I walked off the elevator on the third floor of what was then called Science Hall, which is now Wien Hall. And um, there were all these computers. I had never seen so many computers in my life. I don't know if you've seen this. It's like a fishbowl kind of thing you get off, and there's a glass wall, or at least there was at the time. And all these computers, and, and, and then he took me down the hall and said, let's find somebody to talk to. Raj Reddy's door was open. Of course, I didn't know anything about Raj Reddy. I was a freshman. And he spent about 30 minutes with me, and he must have said something that convinced me that I should come to, to CMU. I mean, just the, the idea that some faculty member is going to spend 30 minutes with a freshman who might be interested in grad school, you know, I mean, it was, it was really astonishing. So at that point, I said, well, I really want to go to CMU. I mean, and that's, that's where I ended up. I was lucky. I actually did get in three years later. Okay, let's hear from John Laird, Bruce Whitey, Sherry Nichols, and Dan Sororik about what it was like to go through the PhD program at CMU in the 1970s. So the first thing happened was the immigration course, which I thought was a great idea. It really created a bonding between all of the first-year students. So there was 21 of us at the time, and I felt that was important for us to get to know each other. You got to meet all the faculty members, got to get an idea of what they were interested in, and really helped settle you in. Then for the next two years, you're trying to work on research, but also you're going through the qualifying exams. And that time we had, I don't know, six qualifying exams. The qualifying exams were all about content areas, like numeric equations, hardware, AI, software. So they really were sort of a hurdle to get over. It wasn't that um, as a result of going through those, you felt that you learned a lot about research. I think research was much more learned by doing research, working with a faculty member. John Laird became a student at CMU in 1976. With Paul Rosenblum and Alan Knoll, John created the SOAR Cognitive Architecture. He currently teaches at University of Michigan. Uh, and then there was this horrible thing called the Extended Duration Qualifier, or the 24-Hour Qualifier, which was they gave you some problem and they said, come back in you know, tomorrow at 9 a.m. with the best you can do on this problem. That was Bruce, but here's John again, who seemed to have taken a slightly different version of the exam. The one I took, I think, was uh, called the Extended Duration Exam, EDQ, and that was an 18-hour um, exam. So you started at uh, 9 o'clock, it must have been only 16 hours. Start at 9 o'clock in the morning and you go through until 1 a.m. And so uh, that was a lot of fun. 
And what was interesting to me is that there was no required courses. And I thought this was great, because I had, was sick of courses by then, being an undergraduate. But there were courses available to help you pass the qualifying exams. And so going through that process, uh, I was a little bit um, nerve-wracking um, in getting through these exams. I think I set the record for the person who uh, got the closest to passing the exams but didn't pass. So you could either pass an exam, you could fail an exam, or if you were in this gray area, they would give you what's called a remedial, where you had to go off and do some extra project because you just didn't quite pass. And so I managed to, and my philosophy on going to the qualifying exams is, well, don't study any more than you really have to because there's no grade. It's just whether you pass or not. Unfortunately, on every, almost every single one, I just missed it. And so I got, I think, more remedials than anybody else. That, that process, you know, you were supposed to get through in a year or a year and a half, something like that. And then pretty much at that point, it was, you know, you and your advisor or your committee. And there was very little structure to the program. No requirements, this many credit hours or this many courses in that. Quite different than most PhD programs at the time, I think, and, and still today. Beyond the qualifying exams, progress in the PhD program is marked by a tradition known as Black Friday. As a student in the 1970s, Sherry Nichols remembers these end-of-semester doctoral student reviews. At the end of each semester, there would be, you didn't get grades, you got an evaluation. Yeah, there would be this big meeting at the end of all the faculty members called Black Friday where they would end. <laughs> they would discuss each of the students. And so he would speak for you there, and then you get a letter saying, okay, here's what you need to do, and here's, you know. Now for the faculty perspective on Black Friday. So the person who came right after Perlis is Joe Traub. He's credited as being what's called Black Friday. And Black Friday is a concept where each semester, all the PhD students are reviewed in terms of their progress to the degree. There's expectations and milestones and so forth. Professor Dan Sororik was the director of the Engineering Design Research Center and co-founder of the Institute for Complex Engineered Systems. It's a way to protect the students from faculty that might you know, hang on to them to be doing more research when they should be moving on. But it also likes young faculty hear how the older faculty judge progress and how they solve problems, particularly if there's problems that are not technical. And so it's good for both the faculty as well as the students. One of my most memorable times was I was walking to school. I lived in, in, uh, in the Shadyside areas, and I would walk over the hill between Shadyside and campus. And one day I said, you know, if I got hit by a car today and died, they would give me my thesis, because I'm close enough. So that was an important point to reach. That is John Laird. Next, we'll hear from Mark Fox, who also was a student in the 70s. Mark will discuss what truly makes a PhD program. The PhD program, I mean, you could talk about a PhD program in terms of, oh, you got these qualifiers, these courses and stuff that you got to take, you know, 
that's neither here nor there. What makes a PhD program is the environment you're in, how you're treated by the faculty, what type of projects you work on, all that type of stuff. It's basically how you're treated. And uh, we felt special. I felt special. I felt almost like I was a peer with the faculty. Uh, everybody was accessible. Uh, everybody was good to you. And, and that was not only at the professorial level, but also at the staff level. The staff here treated you exceptionally well. And so you were welcomed into a very comforting, uh, all-encompassing environment. And you were immediately initiated into the environment because you had things that you had to do. There was this ladder uh, which you got on the ladder and you had tasks to perform. Uh, it's like being in a house, you know, some people had to sweep the front, uh, the bathroom, you know, whatever it is, but not that type of task for what we had to do here. But everybody had tasks that they had to work on. Anyway, so you were on that list and you had to do things for the department. And it was, it was sort of this equality that you all participated in the maintenance of the organization. And then we had things like the cheese club and the coffee club. We used to have a cheese co-op where they would go down to see, you know, you've heard all these stories. Where <laughs> no, they I used to go. heard the stories, I've just seen mention of them. So oh, so they went down to the strip di district once a month and we created computer programs so that online you could order your cheese and then they would go and pick up this huge amount of cheese, bring it back and there would be the cheese cutting party. And you had to put in so many hours every week because it was a co-op, or you had to pay a little, you know, 10% extra for your cheese. And so everybody got into cheese. And the thing, same thing was done with coffee and, and everything else. So there was all-encompassing environment that, that you were part of. And it was more like, like I said, it was more like a family than it was an uh, academic experience, per se. Much of this environment was informed by something called the reasonable person principle. This is Sherry Nichols. It was friendly, it was informal, very accepting. I mean, you know, you didn't call the professors Dr. So-and-so, you called them by, by their first name. There was an assumption that if you were here, you were good. You didn't have to prove yourself. Yeah, explicitly operated by the something called the reasonable person principle, which is we're going to assume you're a reasonable person until you prove otherwise. Alan Perlis, uh, who was the department chair in computer science at the time I was hired in June of 71, had left for Yale by that fall. Uh, he's credited with bringing what was called the reasonable person principle. I'll tell you my interpretation, but most people have their slightly different variations on it. But I think it's one of the reasons that CMU is so nimble and able to react very quickly. The way I paraphrase it is if people have the same information they're likely to make the same decision so I can trust them because they're looking out for the general good of everybody as opposed to just themselves. And so we can make decisions without having to worry about not being backed up if we're sort of doing what's, what's reasonable. And then we don't have to go through layers of bureaucracy to get things done. CMU is still known for much of this quirky culture that developed during this time period and many of the traditions continue to this day. For instance, you can still find good coffee in the School of Computer Science.
The loss of an influential figurehead, the Vietnam War, changes in funding sources, and a new cycle of faculty and students. The 1970s were a challenging time for a new institution to emerge. There's a certain nimbleness to CMU during this period, particularly computing science, and it's very responsive to these external changes. At any moment, the entire house could have toppled, and it did not, such that by the 1980s, the program is large enough that it can seriously discuss a major structural reorganization to create a new college and a separate school just focused on computer science. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time on the podcast, we'll revisit an interview with Pamela McCordick, author and philanthropist, who was married to Joseph Traub and a friend of many in the department. We focus on her experiences at CMU in the 1970s. We will leave you with a few thoughts from Mark Fox. Mark discusses his impression of Raj Reddy, Herb Simon, and the environment at CMU. Raj Reddy was never really my PhD supervisor. He was always a mentor to me. I learned a lot from Raj as to how a B, an entrepreneurial faculty member. Raj is fearless when it comes to exploring new domains. Raj is fearless when it comes to visioning and going in that direction. What he taught me is there's no such thing as can't. Okay, There's no such thing as you can't do this because nobody else does it. It's more like you do this because nobody else is doing it. He taught me to think big. I remember I was sitting in his office and program manager for the National Science Foundation called. And it was near the end of the year and the program manager said, Raj, I have $70,000 sitting in my budget that I haven't spent. Would you be able to spend it on a project for us at CMU? And Raj's response politely uh, was, I'm sorry, uh, I suggest you, you contact you know, some other university where that size grant is meaningful for them. But basically what he was saying, that level of funding was not large enough for, for us to really do something meaningful with. And so he taught me how to think in terms of larger numbers, that under $100,000 was just not, not important enough for us to uh, deal with. If it was in the millions, then yes, we'll, we'll sit up and uh, respond to it. Herb Simon, well, everybody knows about Herb, and he's a Renaissance man. You know, what I learned from him is that Renaissance people can be normal also. We can have conversations about anything, and they would be good conversations. It wasn't as if, you know, scientifically he molded my mind as my uh, advisor, but he taught me how to interact with people as a colleague as opposed to supervisor, uh, student. Um, I, you know, quite frankly, it's this whole environment that really molded me. It's not one faculty member. It's not one faculty member standing out. You're talking about an environment that is supercharged in, with enthusiasm, supercharged with ideas. And this takes it all the way up to the president of the university, Dick Seyert, in that uh, in earlier years, is an environment that's willing to take risks an environment that says there's no place we can't go. There's no idea too stupid not to explore. If what we're going to do is different than what everybody else is doing, that's okay. We'll risk it. 
I remember at one point I wanted to start a manufacturing and management joint program here at the university. I walked into Syert's office and I said, I'd like to pursue the creation of this joint program here. And he looked at me and Mark said, go for it. I'll provide you with funding to go and uh, travel from university to university, see the programs that they have underway, and then you know, go ahead and start working between computer science and uh, GSIA to make it happen. The empowerment that the people in this university provides individuals with is absolutely amazing. And so it's, it's not one person per se, it's, it's how the whole environment molds you intellectually, entrepreneurially, the way it empowers you uh, to just go out and do great things. And I've not seen that created anyplace else. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave. And Dave made all the sounds. All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University libraries.